Kids have a great time in the back. If you're remaining, I'd encourage you to turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Uh, Christine just uh, led us in an affirmation of faith, and uh, you might wonder why we do that each week. Uh, of course, it is an opportunity for us to remind ourselves of the essentials of the gospel and what we believe, um, but most of the things that we read are things written uh, 100, 200, 300, 400 years ago. Uh, the Belgic Confession that we just read from was 500 years ago. Um, we read from the Nicene Creed, which was, is even older than that. These are all ways that, that we affirm from the Christian community of thousands of years ago what it is that we believe about the essentials of God and the gospel. The Apostles' Creed is probably the best known of all of these affirmations that we do. And there's a section of the Apostles' Creed that says this, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived from the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Now that phrase uh, encapsulates what Christians believe about uh, the incarnation. That's the, the word we use to describe that uh, phrase in the Apostles' Creed, which essentially means that God in time and space and history became flesh and dwelt among us. Now as we come to 1 John chapter 4, we discover that's really important for the Apostle John. Uh, because he was dealing with a group of people called the Gnostics in his letters. And a lot of the first century Christians were dealing uh, with these folks. These folks fundamentally denied what we just read about in the Creed. Uh, they fundamentally died, denied the incarnation. They de-emphasized the flesh. They elevated the spirit. The flesh was earthly. And that there, there's no way that the divine could take an earthly form. Now, history has sort of um, declared that this is heretical and unorthodox, and that's certainly what John believed as well, but we can sort of understand their struggle with this doctrine, and here's what I mean by that. We've read that creed so many times um, that the shock of it sometimes wears off, but I want you to really think about what it is that we believe about the incarnation, what that creed says. It tells us that God, in time and space and history, became a man, that God willingly suffered, and that at one point, God even died and was buried in a grave. Now, think about that for a second, how surprising it is that we believe in such a thing. How could God die? How could God appear so weak and ineffectual. How could God suffer? Doesn't that feel really incongruent with everything else that we believe about God who is mighty and powerful and transcendent? And yet that is precisely what the gospel teaches us. He became one of us. He suffered and was crucified. He died and was raised again on the third day. One of the things the scriptures teach us is that this is a doctrine. This is a belief that we must accept a belief that we have to believe in. In fact, John would even argue here that this is a doctrinal test of what it means to be a Christian. To deny this doctrine is really to deny the very gospel itself. 
And so if you want to know if somebody is truly a Christian, remember that's been John's concern here. There's a lot of folks going around saying that they're Christians, but they were really Christian only in name. So John says that here is a doctrinal test. Do they believe in the incarnation, the in the flesh nature of our God? But that's not the only test. If you've been with us, you'll know that's not the only test John talks about. There is a doctrinal test, but there also is the test of love. Our faith is proven and it is completed in our love. In effect, John says there's no such thing as a loveless Christian. No such thing as a loveless Christian. And so what John does in our passage this morning is he connects this doctrine of the incarnation with love. Because love, after all, is what stands behind all of it. So I'm going to be reading from 1 John chapter 4, uh, verses 1 to 21. You can follow along in your bulletin or on the screens behind me or in your copy of God's Word as well. This is God's Word. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world." They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, but because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins." Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because He is so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar." 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the power of your Word and these um, circumstances in which John wrote his letter are different and yet not all that different from the circumstances we live in each day. And so your spirit powerfully can take these words written 2,000 years ago and and apply them to our lives and our situation even today, Father. So spirit, we invite you to illuminate our minds to help us to understand your truth, but not just understand it intellectually, Lord, but understand it in a way that transforms our hearts and our lives as well. So we pray that in the next few moments as we reflect on your word, that spirit, you would come and shape our hearts into who you want us to be. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. I've learned lately that there is um, an instructional strategy out there um, that is called uh, spiral teaching or circular teaching, and uh, this was new to me, but it sort of makes sense, and it's probably, um, you can probably understand what it means. It's essentially you have a point that you want to teach, and you kind of dance around it for a little while, or spiral around it, or circle it for a little while, and you visit it, you move away, you come back to it, you move away, and then eventually at some point you sort of land the plane and make your point uh, very, in a very strong way, and that's called spiral or circular teaching. Well, I don't know if the Apostle John was employing this method, but it certainly feels that way if you read his letter. He has essentially one point, and he keeps spiraling around it or circling around it, trying to make his point. But if you've read the letter at all, you know that he always circles back to love. That's his theme, and he always comes back to love. And some people actually believe that chapter 4 is the section in which he really lands the plane. He really wants to establish this idea and concept of love as strong as possible in chapter 4. And what he's been doing previous to this has just been sort of circling around it or spiraling around, approaching it from all sorts of different angles. And so in verse 10, he says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. And sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Now, I think what John does in his approach to love, uh, at least in this chapter this morning that we're going to look at, is he approaches love through the lens of fear. And he talks about here the fear of being overcome, and he also talks about the fear of punishment. And he uses fears as his means to talk about the love of God and how that love that we receive casts out all of our fears. So let's start at the beginning of the chapter by looking at this fear of being overcome. And and in verse 4, he articulates this by saying, "'Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world.'" It's providential that we're looking at this passage in the month of October, uh, because in the month of October, what we like to do is we like to play with fears. Have you noticed that before? 
Um, we, we decorate the front of our houses with maybe cobwebs and gravestones and inflatables and things like that. Um, we tend to watch scary movies in the month of October. We, we dress up in costumes and go to people's houses saying trick or treat. It's the month where we really like to play with our fears. But we also know deep down that fears are not something really to be trifled with. In fact, our fears often dictate our behavior more than we'd like to admit. Uh, Sometimes we dress in a certain way, sometimes we act a certain way out of fear of rejection. We're afraid to be rejected and so we conduct ourselves in a certain way. We might have an idea or a thought or um, uh, something that comes to our mind, but we refuse to articulate it because we don't want to fear, we fear being um, perceived as unintelligent or not with it. And so we keep those things to ourselves. We have all sorts of fears about measuring up, about um, meeting the standards that are placed around us. We have fears of being exposed for who we really are and that our our deepest and darkest secrets might be revealed for others to see. We have fears of loss. Uh, We have fears of pain. We have fears of suffering. We have fears of hardship. There are so many things that we have in this world to be afraid of. And often those fears are the things that dictate our behavior, the way we interact with each other, the way we conduct ourselves. Now, John's little congregation had their share of fears as well, but their fears seem to be of a spiritual kind. John talks about how they feared the spirit of the world that was around them. He talks about the fear of the spirit of the Antichrist that uh, had shaped so much of the society in which they live in and in reality shapes so much of the society that we live in as well. And so really what John is doing here is he's talking about the fears that we have. He's just talking about them in a different sort of way. And we all know that those fears can seem so strong because everybody else in the world is captured by them as well. Everybody else deals with these fears. Everybody else listens to them and uh, is, is left awake at night worrying about those fears. They capture our hearts. And so what John does is he reminds this little congregation that uh, you have overcome all of those things. You've overcome all of them, not because of your strength, not because of your prowess. You've overcome them because of Christ who is in you. One commentator I read this week connects it to uh, this really cool story in 2 Kings chapter 6. If you don't, later today, go back and read 2 Kings chapter 6. The nation of Israel at that point is being threatened by uh, the nation of Syria. And the the nation of Syria wants to to capture the uh, prophet of God, a man named Elisha. And so they send a great army to go and capture Elisha, and that army circles the village in which Elisha is living at that point. And a young man sees all this happening, and he runs into the house to see Elisha, and he says, this great army has surrounded our village, and they want you. They're coming after you. But the young man can't believe it because Elisha is, is, is not worried about it. He's not captured by fear like he should be. And so what Elisha prays for this young man is that he would see the forces of God at work. 
And so he prays that for this young man. Then the young man goes outside of the village and the passage says that all of a sudden his eyes were opened. And he looked up into the hills and the mountains and he saw the heavenly forces of God and the the chariots of God and he recognized that the forces that were with him, the forces of God, were greater than any force human beings can muster. His whole perspective was changed and his fears were taken away in that moment. You see, that's John's point here. Yes, the systems of this world are powerful and they're strong. The forces against Christ and against Christians seem overwhelming. These these fears feel very legitimate and they are many, but Jesus is bigger than all of them. His power and his might should cast out all of your fears. All we need is the faith to see it. One day it'll be revealed for all to see like it was revealed for that young man in the story of Elisha. One day the power of God will be revealed for all to see, but for now we can only see it through the eyes of faith. And so no matter whatever fear or obstacle you face, no matter how dark and sinister this world feels around you, the Lord is with you. If you are one of his, you will not be overcome. And so John talks about these fears of being overcome, but then he moves on to talk about the fear of punishment. Listen to this verse. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So again, John circles back to love. If you looked at these 15 verses, I believe from, you know, I think it's verse 11 all the way through the end of the chapter. If you look at these 15 verses, he mentions the word love 27 times. 27 times. They always say in literature, if you see something repeated, it must be important. So John has repeated this word love 27 times in this section. What's his point? Well, we, we fear all sorts of things, but there's one innate fear that we all have, and that is the innate fear that we all will be punished, that we all will be punished. You see, I believe, and I think the scriptures teach this, that each one of us innately knows that God exists and that we have offended God through our own nature and through our actions. If you go back to Romans chapter 1, it says that every human being knows this to be true, but what do we do? We deny the truth, we stuff it down, even though we know deep down that it is true, that we all, at the end of the day, deserve punishment. Now, for some people, knowing this just causes them to rebel more against God. If I'm going to go down, I might as well go down and have fun while doing it. But for others, that fear of punishment just does the reverse. It causes them to somehow work harder and harder and harder to try to earn their way back to God's favor. Maybe if I'm just good enough, I can earn my way back into God's favor. And so we react in different ways to this innate fear that is in all of us. But either way, no matter how we react, either way, we all stand before God condemned 
And the punishment of God's wrath awaits us. We live within that fear. And a lot of times that fear dictates our mental health and our emotions and our behavior far more than we realize it. But the question John presents to us is this, what if we could be freed from it? What what if we could be freed from these fears? Well, the gospel tells us that we can. It tells us that we can be freed through love. Verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. John uses a a fancy word here that folks have translated as propitiation to describe what Jesus has done. In, In effect saying that Jesus in his sacrifice bore our wrath that we deserved. He bore the punishment. He bore the judgment that you and I deserved due to our rebellion. And what the gospel tells us is if we've placed our faith in him, we no longer need to fear the divine punishment that we all deserve. We might experience a fatherly discipline from time to time from our heavenly Father who loves us, but the cosmic condemnation that we all deserve, it has been removed by love. And what that means is we don't have to earn God's approval. We could never really do it anyway. Instead, we have it in Jesus. Even though we remain sinful, that judgment it has been lifted, and you and I have been declared righteous. And so the question is, what on earth motivated God to do this? What, what motivated God to take on skin and to, to bear our punishment, to bear our judgment, to bear our condemnation? What on earth motivated him to do it? And this is John's point. It was love. It was love for you. It was love for me that motivated Jesus to do this very thing. And so what John talks about is this perfect love that we receive from Jesus, it casts out our fears. Now, some people have read that and said, well, perfect love casts out fears, so therefore I have to perfectly love God in order to be freed from my fears. And if that were the case, that would be horribly oppressive, wouldn't it? to always have to go around, I've got to perfect my loves in order to cast out all of my fears. But that's not John's point here at all. He's saying it is the perfect love of Jesus that casts out all of our fears. Because if we are in Jesus, we will never be condemned. We will never be estranged. We will never be rejected. We have been loved perfectly. And that perfect love will carry us into eternity. While we may be rejected and estranged and persecuted in this world, while we might be rejected by all sorts of people who have all sorts of fickle love that is here today and gone tomorrow, while we live with so much of earthly approval that feels conditioned upon our performance and our behavior and our attitude, God's love is different. God's love is perfect, and it is eternal, never ebbing and never flowing. It is the only source of life. You see, friends, the more we believe it, the more we accept this through faith, the more our fears will be cast away. Yes, Jesus is powerful. 
He has overcome the world, but he is also love, and that love dispels all of our fears. It is a powerful sort of love. One commentator said this, only powerful love can keep us upright, and that powerful love is to be found as always as we gaze at the cross of Christ. You need to be refreshed in that love, then gaze at the cross of Christ and be reminded of what perfect love looks like. But John also wants us to see here, spiraling around again, that that love is completed in us as we love one another. Look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, it's easy to look at this passage and think that John is somehow saying that, that God's love isn't perfect or that somehow it's, it's insufficient and we need to work hard to sort of complete it or to bring it to completion or bring it to, a, a, to perfection. But that really isn't what John is saying here at all because Jesus' love is perfect. And that, of course, was made evident at the incarnation. What he's saying here is this, that you and I, we reflect that love as we live it out or incarnate it to other people that God puts in our path. This is the love of God that is overwhelming. That overwhelming love of God is made evident to the rest of the world as we love our brothers and sisters, as we love each other. It's as if we become walking billboards of the love of God to those that we interact with day in and day out. What John's essentially saying here is that people will never witness the love of Jesus unless they witness it in you and me. What an amazing calling. What a great burden the gospel calls us to because at the end of the day, there is no such thing as a loveless Christian. So if you're here and you're a Christian, that means this, that in some ways you and I get to carry on the work of the incarnation of your Savior as you embody that love to one another. It's a divine calling it is a divine commission, but otherwise, how will anybody ever truly see the love of Christ? So do you have fears of, of being overcome? Jesus takes care of that. Do you have fears of all sorts of variety? The love of God in its perfection casts out all of those fears. What amazing gift the God, the God of heaven gives to us of giving us this perfect love that casts out all of our fears, but it also comes with a challenge for you and I to embody that love, to incarnate it as we interact with those people that God puts in our path. Let's pray.